0: This episode is brought to you by Paramount+. Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount+. Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG-13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Hi, this is George Maharis, and you are listening to TV Confidential.
1: Ed Robertson welcoming you to TV Confidential, radio talk show about television. Donzellay Abernathy will join us in our second hour. Donzellay Abernathy, an actress you've seen in such movies and TV series as Don King, Only in America, Other People's Money, Murder in Mississippi, 24, Commander-in-Chief, and the critically acclaimed Lifetime TV series, any day now. Donzley Abernathy is also the youngest daughter of the Reverend Ralph David Abernathy, the man who co-founded the Civil Rights Movement along with Dr. Martin Luther King. Donzley is also the lead vocalist of The Listening, a unique choral project inspired by the words of Dr. Martin Luther King that will also remind you very much of the music of Hamilton. We'll talk about that and more when Donsley Abernathy joins us in our second episode hour. We'll be able to stay tuned for that. In the meantime, we'll begin our first hour by welcoming author, essayist, novelist, and TV historian Mitchell Hadley. Mitchell, by his own admission, has, quote-unquote, watched way too much television over the years. Although I would venture to say that for Mitchell, quote-unquote, watching television goes beyond the act of sitting in front of the TV set. It is actively recognizing that the very medium of television has always reflected and driven our culture, whether you are talking about the shows from the golden age of television or the TV universe of today. That happens to be the premise of Mitch's new book called The Electronic Mirror, which we'll tell you more about in just a second. Mitchell Hadley, welcome to our program.
0: Thank you very much, Ed. Thanks for having me.
1: We've done a few segments on what constitutes classic TV. So with that in mind, how would you define classic television and why?
0: For me personally, I tend to look at classic television as being generally from the early to mid-50s, from just about the start of television as a popular medium, into the Late 70s, but usually in a sense where we can take something from the late 70s even, and it becomes relevant today. It can be linked to something that's going on today.
1: Now, what I like about your definition is while I think most people would generally agree with that time period, roughly the first 25 years of the medium of television that we know You also allow yourself a little bit of wiggle room within the concept of TV as electronic mirror because some would say, and I, I even think you would say, that there are certain shows of the 80s and 90s that people gravitate to because they reflect who they were at the time and what the culture was at the time.
0: Absolutely. And one of the nice things about that is that you can look at a show in the 90s and trace its lineage back and you can find some way that it links to the 60s or the 70s, because there's really there's very little new that's out there. I think that's a given. But also in looking at how television has developed, you can see. Oh, for example, this is all within the classic period, but you can see how a show like He and She may evolve into that girl, and may finish up with the Mary Tyler Moore show. And so in that same way, you can look at uh, programs from the 80s, from the 90s, even programs that are today, and you can generally find the roots from the family tree that go back into the uh, 60s or 70s. And the other thing about it is that if you look at what the great influences are on television today, something like reality TV, you can go back to An American Family, the PBS documentary in the 70s with the Louds, and you can even go back from there to shows like A Queen for a Day, and you can see how the idea of reality television and of people playing themselves on TV has always shaped what was going on. So just as some of those shows shaped the 60s and 70s, shows from the 70s will shape the shows that we see today. So there's that continuous line that means that it's, even though there may be eras that are better than others, it's all part of the same family tree.
1: Mitchell Hadley is with us via Skype. Mitchell's latest book, The Electronic Mirror, what classic TV tells us about who we were and who we are and everything in between, is a series of essays that take a look at what classic television is, what it says about the culture that produced it, and why the shared experience of television that marked the lives of so many of us who came of age in a three-network universe, is often lost on viewers today. The Electronic Mirror also traces the evolution of various genres that populated the first three decades of television. It also profiles some of the most iconic personalities of that era, such as Jack Parr, Fred Rogers, and Ernie Kovacs, and tells you many, many useful things, such as why Perry Mason would not have worked as a TV show if Perry Mason were a prosecuting attorney. The Electronic mirror available in paperback and as an ebook through Throckmorton Press, amazon.com where books are sold online. You can follow Mitchell Hadley on Facebook and on Twitter. Let's go back to your definition of classic television mid 50s late 1970s which really drives all of the conversations you have in the various essays in the electronic mirror. Mitchell, now if you look at That 25-year period, 54 to late 1970s, that puts the midpoint at roughly 67, 68. Now, as a country, 1968 was, for lack of a better word, watershed year. It was a very topical year. A lot of stuff shifted in our culture. To what extent did television capture that?
0: Well, in in a certain way, the work the TV did was painful because there's nothing worse than seeing for example your grandparents trying to act hip and television tried to do this in some of the shows and they have some outrageous depictions of what the youth culture looks like to them and then you have shows for example like Dragnet where Joe Friday is trying to reach out to young people, and uh, sometimes that works, sometimes it's just very uncomfortable to watch because the show's really getting out of its element at that point. But I would say that in by the end of the 60s, I think we're seeing television evolve from a medium that, that reflected what was going on to a medium that is also trying to get ahead of the game and perhaps advocate for certain things. And I'll, I'll give you one quick example on that. When I was looking at the coverage of the assassination of Robert F. Kennedy in 1968, I was talking with Joe Bente, who was with CBS News and was doing the anchoring for the first few hours of their coverage. We got to talking about television in general, and he said, if you don't think TV is influential, look at things like Coca-Cola commercials and see how integrated those commercials were and how people could watch them and think to themselves, well, you know, that's not such a bad thing. That looks pretty harmless. It's all right to hang out with people who don't look like I do or don't sound like I do. And so from something as innocuous as that, you see television trying to become – more of an advocate for social change. And that's not to say TV hadn't always done it, because TV was a very active player in the Cold War, for example. But what we're kind of looking at is a shift from the more political, national aspects of it to more of the social mores and how people are living their lives and how television wants to be a storyteller in that way.
1: Another example from that era, 67, 68, is... The original Star Trek, which, granted, it was classified as science fiction, fantasy, adventure, but the, I mean, two things. It was a show that entertained, but had something to say about the culture, and but what was very artful about the original Star Trek is they were commenting on what was going on. At the time, 66, 67, 68, but because it took place five centuries later, in the if I if, if I remember correctly from original series, it's therefore futuristic and therefore no one thought of it as subversive because it's, it was supposedly set right. in the far out future.
0: Yeah, well, you know, if you go back even to when uh, Rod Serling started the Twilight Zone, one of the re- Reasons he did that was because he was so tired of sponsor interference with some of the stories he was trying to tell, and he had um, a uh, script that he'd written, I believe it for was for Studio One called The Arena, and it was a political drama, and everybody had to get in on how they didn't want this particular subject raised, they didn't want tariffs raised because it would would identify with the Republicans, they did didn't want another issue raised because it would identify with the Democrats, the sponsors didn't want to have their products become involved in something like this, and the way he was led to science fiction was his comment that he might as well have just invented a Senate populated by robots talking (laughs) about different issues. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and and so he he was able to go out and within the ostensible framework of fantasy and science fiction to be able to discuss some really hard social topics. And Roddenberry had complained about this as early as the early 60s because he was really active in, in television at that time. He had written some things for uh, Have Gun, Will Travel. And that was a series that also tried to tackle social issues within the framework of a Western Mm Scenario. But Roddenberry was one of those writers that was always conscious about the limitations that TV had imposed on it and how the writer needed a sense of freedom to be able to discuss some of those issues. And by the end of the 60s, we're seeing more and more that that writers are getting the opportunity to do that. Uh, You have Sterling Siliphant with Route 66 and Naked City. And you have other writers of The era who are also finding that if they can get more freedom to discuss those kinds of things, then they can talk about social change. They can become advocates for certain things that they feel very strongly about.
1: Sterling Siliphant, Rod Serling, and Gene Roddenberry are three of the iconic television writers that Mitchell Hadley uh, talks about, writes about in his new book, The Electronic Mirror The Electronic Mirror, what classic TV tells us about who we were. Who we are and everything in between. Series of essays that probe many iconic shows of the uh, first uh, 25, 30 years of television. The Electronic Mirror, available in paperback and as an ebook. Amazon.com, where books are sold online. You can follow Mitchell on Facebook, Twitter, and it's about TV.com. Stay with us, folks. We'll be right back. Uh,
0: mm
1: You mentioned Route 66 when you're talking about Sterling Sullivan. You make a very interesting point about quote-unquote retro shows such as AMC's Mad Men, which generated a lot of buzz when they originally premiered in the mid-2000s because they depicted the culture of the 1960s. But you, you make the point in the electronic mirror, Mitchell, that if you really want to understand the 60s, if you really want to understand the 50s, you're better off watching shows like Route 66 because that really reflects the culture of the time.
0: It does, and I think that it- even when it's not trying to do that, it does it. Uh, one of the things I uh, phrases I use about Route sixty six, for example, is that it's an inadvertent documentary. Uh, the cameras are out there on location. You can see what cities used to look like, what what it used to be when you didn't have urban sprawl and you were going from place to place and you were able to see the different dialects and the different regions, the different ethnic groups that populated them, and you. you You were also able to take a look at a time when you didn't have to have a college degree. You didn't have to have a background check. You didn't have to have all these things in order to be able to get work. And so I think that 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 is kind of that inadvertent documentary. But the other thing about these shows that make them, I think, superior to going back in time with a show like Mad Men, and this is not to knock on Mad Men necessarily, but everything from the words that are used, how people talked back then, it all gets filtered through modern sensibilities. And I don't think there's any way we can avoid doing that. And so by doing that, you're automatically putting a filter on it. You're seeing it from a distance, whereas when you watch a show like Medic, where Uh, an episode of of medic a richard boone medical drama and he's dealing with a young woman who finds out that she is probably a carrier of the gene that causes hemophilia and her little brother has it and anytime he bumps himself he could bleed to death so she breaks off her engagement to her fiance because she says who What man would want to marry a woman incapable of giving him children? Now, that may sound foreign to a lot of people today, but that's not foreign in the era in which the show is being made. And I'm I'm not sure you could pick up a subtlety like that by doing a show today about a show in the 50s. But back then, they were just writing about things the way they were.
1: The Electronic Mirror by Mitchell Hadley, available Amazon.com, wherever books are sold online. Um, another, uh, I, th- I think that I think the term you just use is inadvertent documentary. Uh, yes. Uh, another example of that, to some degree, is The Fugitive by Quinn Martin. I have a sister in San Francisco who teaches third graders, and once a year I go up. To san francisco and i visit her kids and um they're fascinated that i'm not only a professional writer but that but i write about television you know and so i do a talk with the kids and we show an episode of the fugitive where david jansen through happenstance meets this troubled nine-year-old kid so the kid is their age and at the end of each act we stop what you, what's going to happen next what do you think what to look for but the important thing is we set everything up by saying this was done pre-internet pre-cable in small towns in particular the daily newspaper was the number i mean you know not only not only in small towns but in the 1960s newspapers were still the number one source of information so yes. and so we used that particular episode not only to talk about you know, why I wrote about The Fugitive, but also to give them a little capsule figure about this gives you an idea of how life was in an era without all the trappings that we're all accustomed to today.
0: Well, yeah, you're absolutely right. I think that The Fugitive does a great job of that. That's uh, one of my favorite shows. And and, um, I think that it is important for people to be able to look at that, to get a perspective on what life is like today. You know, I I made a joke in the book about how different Perry Mason might be uh, today because uh, Paul wouldn't be calling in or rushing in at the last second. He'd just text Perry with something. And it requires some some creativity on the part of writers to come up with plots now because uh, so many of these standards— from the 60s and 70s, the the missed phone calls, the things that uh, couldn't possibly happen today because we're always in communication. And yet that was a staple of what was going on then. But I think your point about The, the Fugitive and about some of these other programs is uh, excellent, that they just, they give you that look on what life used to be like. And you know, we live in such a disposable culture today, disposable memories, disposable histories, disposable relationships. And one of the things that I treasure about television as our common heritage is that it gives us a chance to see what our lives have been like. That's kind of where you go with the electronic mirror, this idea that we can look back and see how we have evolved, how we have changed, how things may have gotten worse or they may have gotten better. Here are some things we should be ashamed of. Here are some other things we can be pretty proud of. But this is our history right there. And, if, it, it, and I think it's very important for television to be taken seriously as a principal document of what that history is all about. Mitchell
1: Hadley is with us via Skype. We'll talk some more with Mitch and about his book, The Electronic Mirror, when we come back on TV Confidential. Story Salon is Los Angeles' longest-running storytelling venue. We have live shows every Wednesday in Studio City, as well as solo shows, podcasts, CDs, and several books. Los Angeles Daily News calls Story Salon gemstones of narrative, something new, funny, astonishing sunset magazine says tales tall tragic and tantalizing all of this makes story salon one of the most eclectic entertainment experiences available you can learn more about us by going to our facebook page or by visiting our website at www.storysalon.com.
0: accredited by guinness world records welcome to archival television audio incorporated a peerless tv soundtrack archive preserving the audio from television's first three decades the 1950s 60s and 70s the golden and silver age of television for more information go to atvaudio.com
1: be part of our conversation if you like what you hear